you brought your Bible today, go ahead and pull that out and open up to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is where we're going to be working from today. Uh, here at Sedaris in our times of teaching, we usually uh, start with the scriptures. We love to work from the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, and work through a portion of scripture each, each day. And um, that's what we're going to be up to today, starting in 1 Samuel. We're going back to the Old Testament, or the First Testament, uh, and it, which is just as much the Word of God as the rest of it. So, uh, 1 Samuel, um, and this week we are uh, continuing to dive into our, expo- our exploration of the five C's here at Sedaris. We've been going through um, a sermon series that we've entitled The Five C's over the past several weeks, and we kind of took an, a week to unpack what each one of those C's actually was, starting with uh, connection to conversation to consideration uh, to conviction to confession. This is a process that we see God taking his people on and inviting everybody on the face of the earth to participate in in order to grow in him and mature in him and come to know him and get his purposes done in the world. And so this has been a really fun series that we've been in. Um, it's been a kind of a chance to really just pop the hood on Sedaris and, and, and really examine uh, how do we think this whole thing is supposed to run? Like, well, what are the big components of the engine when it comes to the car, which is the mission of God in the world? And so we've been able to un- unpack that together. It's been really fun. If you've been here over the past six or seven weeks, you've learned that each one of those words has a big, robust definition that we attached like a 50 or 60 minute lecture to. And so if you haven't checked out all of those, we encourage everybody to go back. They're on YouTube. They're on our podcast. Get plugged into those uh, so that you can really um, start to unearth the the meaning of all these uh, sermons that are going to follow it, because what we're doing now is we're kind of diving into case studies. If it's true that the five C's are how God works within his people to bring uh, flourishing into their lives and then the rest of the world, or bring people to himself, then we should see it everywhere in scripture, right? Because that's what he's up to, been up to with his people for for all time. And so what we're doing is we're opening up the script, we're opening up the scriptures together and we're looking at some great examples of God running the five C's together. And uh, it's really fun and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's really cool because uh, something that Dave and I do pretty often, uh, we do a good deal of pastoral counseling. Um, so whenever anybody reaches out uh, from the church, reaches out and, and wants to get together, get, get together with us and ask for help, we, we jump at the, that opportunity where we're there. Many of you guys, I've met with many of you guys uh, in, in that capacity. Um, and we love going through that. And we, we like to call it theological counseling, uh, just to kind of differentiate it from psychological counseling, you know. Uh, but this is something that we do because uh, everybody gets stuck at several moments in their life as a Christian. Everybody gets that feeling where they just feel stuck, where, where, where they feel stuck. And so we love to theologically counsel people, which is to say, we connect with you, we converse with you, we hope to get down to a piece that you can consider, a piece that God might push forward some conviction with you in, in the hopes that you might be able to confess that, oh, this is what God has done to get me unstuck. We just kind of run the five C's with you kind of in a personal counseling session. Um, And this is what the crazy thing is, as I reflected upon, what do we really do in theological counseling? We run the five C's with you, but usually that piece that we come into when we get to that piece where we're asking you to consider something, have you considered this? Usually what we're doing is we're just asking, have you considered getting plugged into the five C's with regards to the rest of your life? 
with regards to the church? Have you considered uh, connecting to other believers? Have you considered uh, how you might have big conversations with them and get to some other points of what God is up to and, and together step out of the center of the universe and ask God, God, is this true? Is this what you want from me now? And, and let God work on conviction in your heart and then confess that together. A lot of our theological counseling, not, not everything, but almost always, we're really helping people just get back on the cycle of the five C's. And we're not doing this sermon series in order that people will stop asking us for counseling. No, no, no. We, we love doing that with people. We love doing that with you guys. But then we just realize there's lots of people who get stuck and they don't want to reach out and ask for help. That's a hard thing to do. And so we're just trying to give uh, as, much, uh, as many tools as we can to help all of us get unstuck when we feel unstuck, help one another get <laughs> unstuck when perhaps your friend feels stuck, and then perhaps even look outside of our church and invite other people uh, who might not even know Jesus yet, to consider starting the five C's in some way, that God might be trying to start that with them. And, and today we're in 1 Samuel, because one subject that, uh, that has led to a lot of questions that, that I've been getting asked each week by, by you guys, which is a great question, which is, which one of these, um, these subjects, which ones are individual which ones are corporate? How are we supposed to think about these? When, like, when I'm, that's a great question because what you're doing is you're actually asking, okay, how, how am I supposed to, to apply this in my life? Like the five C's are great. We've been talking about them really abstractly, but, but what about applying it? Like let's get down to brass tacks here. Which ones do I do by myself which is which, versus which ones do I do with everybody else? Um, and and as, in a sense, there's a cheater answer here, which is they're all always communal. They're always communal tasks. Um, in one sense, you can run the five C's with just you and God. There's two of you. So it's communal in that sense. You, know, you might say, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, Ryan. That's like the individual parts of it, right? Yeah. But you can connect, you can converse, you can consider, you can experience conviction, and you can confess that, that conviction back to God, just between you and God. And you've done the full five C's. You've run the process. Um, but God has also uh, designed, he's built and he's continued to empower something else to help you flourish um, in the, th by going through the five C's called the church. And, and, and that's the question of like, what parts of this do I do communally? And, and, and so in another sense, God hopes that these five C's are experienced in the community of his church, which is really designed a, a, around trying to help all of us get through this process, and which has led to some really beautiful uh, communal corporate church confessions over the millennia called the Great Confessions that, that you can go on, uh, up to Google and, and, and read. These are things like the, the Nicene Creed and, and the Apostles' Creed and, and other things, things like this. So the five C's are always communal in a sense, and, and you can run them with God or you can run them with other Christians that you know and trust. And, and today we're coming to the historical recounting of a woman named Hannah because we see both of these happening in her life. First, she's working through the five C's between her and God. She, she's working at it with, with her and God, but then eventually it spills out. It spills out into the Jewish community of her day, and, and it continues to spill out even to this day. Her five C's are going to influence us and our communal corporate consideration of how we might grow in God. Too. And so that's something to really uh, take note of. As the five C's, if you're properly running them, most effectively running them by yourself with God, eventually they're going to spill out. 
eventually they're, they're going to spill out into other relationships with people. Eventually, uh, you're not going to be able to keep in these convictions that God has given you, that are giving you life, uh, and confess them to other people, which in turn requires connection, and then you're, then you're on the loop. And we talked about how this confession isn't just confessing your sin, but there's a whole, there's so many dynamics to confession. Uh, confessing sin is part of, it's a piece of uh, this broader category of confession, but not the only thing there. So we're, we're going to roll up our sleeves and, and go into Hannah today. And many of you have probably know this story. Many of you love this story, rightfully so, because Hannah is really depicted as uh, probably the most pious woman in the Old Testament, perhaps uh, all the scriptures. Um, and this is in, in spite of, perhaps even because of, her infertility. Uh, Hannah couldn't, she couldn't have children which it was a painful, painful struggle. We're going to see that would plague her for many, many years. Uh, this is something even today that, that we seek scientific advancements to try to get around this painful hardship that's still part of, of many, many couples' lives and stories, often for years and years and years. So, something that even, even, even when we have all the science that we can, it's something that, continue, that couples can continue to experience and endure in their lives. It's in, and so we just have to realize going into this that this is, this is a, I know some of your stories, this is a, a painful reality that many of us here at Sedaris have, have been in and, and had to, to wrestle with. But, but this is what is amazing about Hannah and stories like Hannah in the scriptures is the scriptures never try to hide the hardest parts of humanity. They're always going to bring them up. They're always, they're always so present in the pages of Scripture are, are the hardest parts of Christianity. There is a certain sense in which um, a big critique of, of churches is that uh, sometimes you can encounter church bodies where everybody seems to have it put together on Sunday mornings. Maybe you've heard this critique. But that's not the spirituality that we find in the Scriptures. These Scriptures are, are brutally honest and, and brutally uh, exposing of the pain that it is to be a human in this fallen and this broken world. And it's good that it does that because if we don't really lean into the pain that these Scriptures present for us, the beauty of the healing balm of the story of redemption that Scripture is telling us isn't quite as beautiful. It's not quite as beautiful. And so the Scriptures, on, on one sense, are going to validate our pain, and then on another sense, they're going to give us an incredible hope, even though it might be hope in something else entirely. So, so that's enough by way of introduction. Let's read it together. First Samuel chapter 1. Um, we're just going to start right at the beginning here. There was a man from Ramathim Zophim in the country, in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroboam, son of Elihu, and son of Tohu, son of Zoph and Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Well, what's this um, introduction tipping us off to here? It's presenting the problem for us, and it's really what it's doing is it's trying to highlight for the Jewish reader um, a scenario that would have been very, very familiar in their scriptures. As, as you read this, the Jewish person would have thought of, okay, this is just like Abraham and Sarah. Okay, this is just like, this, this is just like Rachel and, and Jacob. 
These were, these were women who were married to men, and men uh, were having children with other women at the same time. And so this is like an, an incredible, deep level of hardship that these women were experiencing, um, not just because they couldn't have children with, with their husbands, but because um, it was very clear that their bodies were broken. They were the ones that couldn't have it. Their husband was able to have children with other women, and then the, the rivalries and, and the taunts that would come as a result of that competitive edge there. Um, they were the ones that were barren. They were the insufficient ones. It's incredibly, incredibly painful. Um, and like in many other places in the Old Testament, we encounter polygamy here. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. It's the, the, the story of Hannah does, isn't really trying to, to speak to to, it is saying that the dynamics of polygamy, of polygamy lead to some really intense additional brokenness in marriage relationships, and so polygamy is not ideal whatsoever. Um, but I will say a few things because I know that polygamy is, is it's a hard thing for us to consider as we read through these Old Testament scriptures and, and really uh, see a God who doesn't seem to pass judgment on it. Am I the only one? Like, what's going on here? Like, why isn't God passing judgment on this? How, how could a, a just God look favorably upon these men? The, the, the fathers of the faith, we call them, when they had two, three, four wives. King David, dozens. Solomon says hundreds. <laughs> What's going on here? These guys wrote significant pieces of scripture that we read today, and they had hundreds of wives. How could God not pass judgment? Now, now, to be clear um, and to be certain, in the creation account, it clearly insinuates that polygamy is off base and, and far off of God's vision for a relationship between a husband and a wife. Uh, the apostles and Jesus spoke against polygamy in the New Testament, right? But it clearly happened regularly throughout the Old Testament times. Um, why? Well, some have said that the Hebrew law didn't actually forbid polygamy, but you can actually, there's actually a pretty good case that it does in, in Leviticus 18 here. Uh, there's, there's a couple verses in Leviticus 18 where you could really interpret them as prohibiting polygamy on, on, on any level. I don't want to get into it. it there's, there's a big scholarly debate, and it's really interesting, and, and it's pretty convincing, actually. But, but why, even if it is, why is it tolerated? <laughs> why is it tolerated? And this is not a question that we just have as, uh, you know, enlightened adults. This is a question that Lucy asked me. <laughs> So I'll give you the same answer that I gave her after talking with her a long conversation, all right? It's because God is always more serious about marriage than we are. And he's better at extending grace than we are. He's more serious about it than us, and so we're continually departing from his desire and vision for marriage. But at the same time, praise be to him, he extends mercy and grace way better than we do. And so he continually covers over our sin to relate with us and lead us towards truth. So God's more serious about marriage than we are, but he's also extending more quickly to extend grace than we are at the same time. And praise be to God, because you ask any married couple, and they all fall short of the vision of marriage all need to lean on the grace of God. Now, there is some lasting and, and more significant injustices that are taking place in full-fledged polygamy here. Um, 
But like I said, that's, a, that, that's an, another talk for another time. For the time being, let's just move forward and say God is more serious about marriage and also more quickly to extend grace. Let's, let, let's pick it up in verse 4. Here we go. This is where we're going to see the, the, the dark side of polygamy encounter Hannah's life. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Penaniah, and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival, that's Penaniah, would taunt her severely just to provoke her, because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. Hannah would weep and not eat. She'd be too upset even to participate in eating. And this is taking place over the course of years, years by year. by Each trip to worship the Lord at Shiloh is a reminder of another year gone by without a child for her. What, what, what should have been one of the, the heights of, of the, the Hebrew pilgrimage to, to the place to worship the Lord at Shiloh and offer a sacrifice in person to the Lord at Shiloh, what should have been the most celebratory time and her relationship with God actually was her most painful. So much so she couldn't eat and she'd just weep. Which leads us to ask, shouldn't her husband step in here? Come on, dude. But look at what he did. Verse 8. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. What a question. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? This is not a good way to console your wife. <laughs> this is one of the most incompassionate things you can do to someone who's in pain. What is he doing here? He's insinuating that she's being selfish. So not only does Hannah have this rival wife who will not be compassionate towards her, her own husband, who supposedly loved her, insinuates that she's just being selfish. What an incompassionate guy. Now, he's probably referring here to, am I not better to you than 10 sons? He's probably referring to Jacob and and Rachel. Jacob had 10 sons by the time Rachel was able to conceive again. She was barren for the first 10 sons that he had. But but still, am I not enough for you? No, that's not the point, dude. So what does she do? She runs to the temple to pray. She runs to the temple of the Lord to pray. Now, before we look at her running to God, we have to recognize a very, very crucial part of the story, which is also similarly sticky. Um, Hannah's barrenness, it wasn't her husband's fault. It wasn't her husband's fault at all. And, and it's not like a, a dark spiritual force's fault. It's not even sin's fault generally. Like, like because of the fall, some, some women's reproductive systems don't work how God designed them to, and so she couldn't have a baby No, in verses 5 and 6, it says it twice. The Lord had kept her from conceiving. It's God's fault. God did it. This is very confusing, isn't it? And God, on the one hand, he commissions all of humanity to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. He places that desire within the hearts of humans. But at the same time, he keeps Hannah from fulfilling that command. What's going on here? This is one of the first insights to the five C's, actually. In short, God has done this because he wants to connect with Hannah. He wants to connect with Hannah. He's trying to get her started on the process of the five 
sees. We see this actually over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. This is just one case of dozens that we witness in, in, in the narrative of scriptures. God gets in the way of human flourishing so that people might reach out to him and connect with him. He, he places us in seemingly helpless situations so that we might cry out to him for help. Why? Because he wants to work grace through us and get the credit for it. And get the credit for it. So, so he lets us come to these low points in life so that we cry out to him in dependency for help. Perhaps you can even think of some of those in your own life. Maybe you've blamed other forces that might be at stake, but, but have you considered maybe God is allowing me to experience lack here that I might reach out and connect with him to experience this blessing from his hand instead of coming by way of some other way that I wouldn't be able to give credit to him. He sometimes does this in all areas of our lives where we're not currently on the process of the five C's. He can frustrate those areas so that we might connect with him in them. He's trying to start a conversation with us. I, I, God's, God's let me go into several pits of despair in life. Maybe you've been there as well. Several pits of despair in life. He's truly let me exhaust all of the, the things that were at my disposal to, to meet a need that, that I felt I had until I got down to the bottom of my rope and I was like, God, I need to cry out to help for you, from you. God wants us to connect with him and he wants to have a conversation with us. He, when he feels most far away, it might be the time when he's actually the closest to you, just in a different way than you think he might be. He's just there, letting you get to a low point in your finances, a low point in your relationships, or in a certain relationship, or in a job, or in joblessness, because he wanted to get you on the five C's. He wanted to start a conversation with you. He invites us to depend on him, so that when he does extend the gift and we receive the grace, point at him for it. It's exactly what he's doing here with Hannah. He withheld children from her. He kept her from conceiving because he wanted to display his grace, his mercy, his power through her story and get the glory for it so that others might see it and consider who he is. That's why. That's why. A barren woman, though, the lowest positions in society, God does it to her because he wanted to have a conversation with her. So year after year, she came to the temple where she apparently, she would experience the pain of this barrenness most acutely. Year after year after year, she experiences the taunt. This year she experienced some crazy sideways comment from her husband. And what does she do? She finally runs to God with it. She ran to the temple to connect with God. Let's look at what it looks like. Verse 9. So on one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son this word remember, uh, we encountered it when we went through Exodus a lot. It, it means, would you think of me and, and act for me? It's not just kind of bring me to your mind, God. It's act on my behalf. God remembered the Israelites and delivered, him from, delivered them from Egypt. Remember me, she says, and not forget me. 
Give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Eli was praying silently, and, and though her lips were moving her, or Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied, I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, go in peace. May the Lord of God Israel grant the request you've made of him. And she said, may your servant find favor with you. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. It's a beautiful wordplay. That's a work here at the end of this interaction. Hannah's name, it means gracious woman. Uh, gracious woman. And, and so when she, she looks at the priest, and she says, you, you think I'm drunk, right? I'm not a wicked woman. I'm a gracious woman. I'm, I'm Hannah. That's what she's saying. I, I'm not a wicked woman. I'm a gracious woman. And then the final thing she says to him is, may your servant find favor or find grace with you. May, may you see that I am a gracious woman. It's, it's a beautiful wordplay here present in, in, in the Hebrew. Um, and it does just bring up just the, the subject. This is kind of a side topic, but it's okay and, and even encouraged to, to name your kids names that come from uh, major themes of who God is because it's something they can lean on throughout their entire lives. Um, my wife's middle name is Hope. And in our relationship, whenever there's like significant despair, she's the, the one that's like, no, we need to hope here. Like, <laughs> that's my name. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a hoping woman. That's essentially what Christy says, you know? I'm a hoping woman. My name's Ryan Nicholas. There's nothing special about that. It means little king, and you know what? I probably live out that more than being hoping, you know? Names are powerful. Names are powerful. So anyways, that's just a side comment there. She says, I'm a gracious woman. I'm not a wicked woman. I'm a gracious woman. The biggest thing that we want to highlight here with regards to the five C's is this is an excellent example of C number two, conversation. Conversation. This is an incredible conversation with God. If you remember back to our talk on the second C, conversation, um, Dave provided a pretty basic but very, very deep definition of what conversation actually is. Do you, do you remember what it was? an exchange of hearts, an exchange of hearts. This is what we see happening with, with, with Hannah here, an exchange of hearts. She runs to God extremely hurt and so much pain, and she cries out to God from the depth of her heart. She's in tears, she's weeping. She expressed, exchanged her heart with God. So much, she was completely undone, so much so that, that the priest thinks that she's drunk. That's how beside herself she was. She, she assured him, no, this is not drunkenness. This is broken heart. I'm Hannah. I'm a gracious woman. Exchanging hearts, bringing your heart to God. When was the last time you brought your heart to God? There's talking to God, and then there's having conversation with God. Hannah's having a conversation with God. That's what's happening here. Hannah has a conversation with God here. We're prone to just talk to God. We're prone to just talk to God. 
this phrase here, pouring out her heart, um, is actually very instructive in the Hebrew. Uh, it's sacrificial language. They, they've come up to offer the, the sacrifice at the temple, the yearly sacrifice at the temple, and she says, I'm sacrificing my heart here. When the priest, I'm, sac- I'm pouring out my heart. So, so that's, that's having a conversation with God. To genuinely converse with God means to sacrificially work to bring your heart to him, to exchange your heart with him. This, this, is, what da- this is what King David talks about in Psalm 51. Um, he, he says, uh, true, the true sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Your deep hurts, your afflictions, anguishes, trials that you're going through. I'm not saying that, that tears need to be flowing down your faith, but, but, but are we bringing our hearts to God with regards to these? Are we doing the hard work to uncover the real pain that we have surrounding them, or are we just talking to God about them? When was the last time you brought your heart into conversation with God? Hannah says, I'm afflicted. Remember me. Give me a son. And then she leaves. And we might be tempted to think that it's just a one-way conversation. Hannah's bringing her heart. But actually, when we read verse 18, we know that God brought his too. Verse 18 says, May your servant find favor with you, she replied to Eli. Then Hannah went on her way, and she ate, and no longer looked despondent. No longer looked despondent. She got a piece of God's heart. She went away. Her situation is entirely the same, but she leaves and walks away with more life. She came into contact with the heart of the author of life and left a changed woman. God must have extended his heart of life to her. Sharing conversation with the author of life means that you get it on the way out. Now, now on the surface, it could seem that Hannah's bargaining with God. Uh, This is sometimes one of our difficulties as we come into contact with the scripture. We say, whoa, I'm pretty sure that we're not supposed to kind of like make deals with God. That's kind of like a sketchy thing to do. Are we really putting God on the hook for stuff? Doesn't seem like something us created beings should be doing to the almighty, eternal, powerful being. And that's that's exactly right. (laughs) Um, But that's actually not what Hannah's doing here in this encounter. That this is not a deal, and it's not a deal for a couple of reasons. Um, it would be a deal if she was just talking to God. If she was just talking to God, yeah, she, she'd be trying to bargain with him. But she's talking with God. And, and when we utter things like this to God, when we're exchanging hearts with him, it's something else entirely. And in, in the passage here, it's called a vow. A vow. It's, it's, it's not transactional at all. It's a co-created plan between her and God that they created as they shared hearts together. But how do you know if you made a deal versus a vow? Um, I'm just going into this because this might be something that yours truly struggles with, okay? Um, But how do you, because we, we really need to consider that the level of intimacy that's taken place when this interaction happened, but, but even then our hearts can be a little bit fickle. Even in those moments where we feel like we're being most real with God, we can be tempted to try to make some deal with him to get something from him. So then move on to the second indicator and, and look at the vow itself. That's, that's a really good uh, way to examine it. What does Hannah get out of this vow? Pretty much nothing. Pretty much nothing. She, she risks her life 
Pregnancy is no walk in the park, as many of the women uh, present <laughs> here today. Um, pregnancy is no walk in the park. Back then, there's no modern technology, modern medicine. It's especially dangerous. I mean, you, you risked your life getting pregnant back then, especially if, if you had been barren. Perhaps something might go wrong with your... There might be a reason you're not getting pregnant. So she, she decides to risk her very life and then get almost nothing in return. That's a vow. This isn't transactional because she's actually not getting anything in return. But let's see how it turns out, okay? Verse 19, let's continue on. The next morning, Elkanah and, and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord. Afterward, they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah, Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. Samuel is uh, asked for from El God. Asked for God. I asked God for him. When Elkanah and all his household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go and explain to her husband, after the child's weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband, Elkanah, replied, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. Uh, side note here is um, Elkanah totally had the power in the relationship to nullify any vow that Hannah would make before God, and he decides not to. So he's not completely unfeeling and uncompassionate. <laughs> he's willing to say, you know what, this is our son, and, and you made this vow, so we need to honor it before the Lord. Where are we? Perfect. Verse 24. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, half bushel of flour, and a clay jar of wine. Though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. We're not sure exactly how old Samuel was at this point. Probably between one and two years old is what most of the uh, theologians think. Then she says this to Eli, Please, my Lord, she said, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he worshipped, that is Samuel, then he worshipped the Lord there. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the chance to witness the bond created between a mother and and an infant. Um, and unfortunately, we haven't been able to see it so much in person here as a church um, because of coronavirus over the past year and a half, but 10 babies were born in, in, during coronavirus, which is cool. It's a huge sign of life. We're really happy that, that these babies are in our midst. And I'd tell you what would happen if you tried to take a baby away from any one of those moms. It's one of the most powerful bonds in the created order. It is the bond between a mother and their infant. And it's not like this isn't a bond that was cut right away before it had any chance to form. This is like she didn't have the baby and give Samuel over right away. This is a bond that she made, nursed him, got to know him. I mean, Viva's uh, nine months old. We love chasing around the house. She chased him around the house, giggled, laughed. This is a deep bond that was created, but she hands him over. It's incredible. It's, it's, it's just an incredible sacrifice that I can't even imagine. Now, back to the five C's. What part of the five C's is this? It's confession. It's confession. 
in, in our lecture series, when we talked about confession, we said it's much more than a, just verbal acknowledgments that we make with our mouths. They're actually, uh, confession is everything that we do in response to the word of God. So Hannah has received this baby, and in response to all that God has done in her life, she confesses that, that he is true, he is the, the one who has given it to her, and then gives him back. It's an act of confession. It's an act of confession. Everything that we do, um, in some sense, is a confession as to who the Lord is in life. But it comes also, she makes a verbal confession as she does it, and it's really, really beautiful when we look at it. It's in verse 27, she's talking to the priest. She says, I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. Since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give him to the Lord. The Lord gave, me to, gave him to me, and so I give him to the Lord. It's so simple, right? It's, it's such a simple definition of even just what following God is. The Lord gave him to me, I give him to the Lord. To, to, to take all the good gifts that God has extended to us and turn them back around and invest in the plans for his kingdom on earth. Hannah's going double or nothing on God. She, she's like, everything God gave to me, I turn back around and I'm going to invest it in the kingdom. She's going double or nothing and she knows that it's not a gamble at all. She knows that the table's tilted in her favor because she worships the almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, who gives good gifts to his people and he will not stop giving. It's really incredible. What, 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 what convictions must Hannah have in order to, for her to say this. Um, this. This is probably just a tip for, for reading the, the narrative. Convictions are something that happen really internally within our hearts. Like when you're convicted of something, we talked about this when we talked about conviction, it's something that happens internally within your heart. It's a work of, of the Holy Spirit. It's a work of God within us to, to convict us towards his word. Now that is often not present as we read through narrative accounts of scripture. Uh, consideration and conviction are often in between the lines of Scripture. You'll see the connection, you'll see the conversation, and then you'll see the confession. And so then the, the question is, how can we start to fill in these gaps of consideration and conviction that, that we might too ask God to provide those same considerations and those same convictions for us? This is just one of the big ways of, of how to read the Scriptures. And the five C's kind of gives you the right questions to ask. You kind of look for the connection, you look for the conversation, you see the confession, and you try to fill in the gaps of the consideration and the conviction that has taken place um, by looking at at primarily the conversation and then especially the confession that came about. And, and looking at this confession, there's, a, there's lots of convictions that she may have had, but there's two ones that were definitely present. First and, former, first and foremost, her primary conviction is that her pregnancy was nothing short of the hand of God in her life. Nothing short of that. Now, Elkanah, he contributed his piece, you know, whatever. But she's convinced that the Lord did it. The Lord gave him to me. That's what she tells the priest. He gave him to me. She did not hide that. Oh, I'm, I'm so guilty of this. I hide the things that the Lord gives to me. I don't confess it. She confesses it. It's beautiful. The Lord gave him to me. How awesome is that? She didn't hide it. It's a big conviction and she lets it become a confession. 
Maybe you're like me. Maybe you hide the convictions of, of how, how you've seen God work in your life. This is an invitation to bring those out. The, the story of Hannah says, proclaim it from the rooftops. Give God the credit. The whole reason why he brought you down to the low thing to, to do something through you was so that he would get the credit, so give it to him. That's what the story of Hannah tells us. We need to give God the credit for when he shows up and does stuff for us. Gives us the good gifts that he promised us as we depended on him for it. Confess it. Confess it to the world. Now, so that, that's a huge category of confession. <laughs> Saying what God did. And we can apply it specifically to the areas that, that, that we know because we, we went to the depths and we got to the point where we're like, I can't get this from anywhere else. Only God's going to be the one that does this. And he does it and so we can confess it. But there's a whole other category of confessing what God does, which is all good things come from God. Every good and perfect, we have that in a slide, uh, James 1, James 1, 16 and 17. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And we can hear this and we can think, really, every good thing? Like, every good thing? Should we really confess every good thing as being from God? Isn't that a little bit obnoxious? Like, what about ice cream? Like, I can get a good cone of ice cream at Dick's, 100 feet away. Mint chocolate chip. I mean, it's real ice cream over there, guys, you know? It's good stuff. It's good. Isn't that brought to you by Dick's, though? Not God? But where did we humans get the ability, huh? To acquire knowledge and skills for making ice cream. You, you can trivialize any of it. <laughs> Who designed and made the cow that provided the milk? Who owns all the resources that, that were used? Who created and sustains the natural laws that this chemistry of ice cream abides by? Hmm? Who kept it from being spoiled? Lord. We can't give God too much credit for the good we encounter in the world. This is something Dave and I have said for a long time. We can't give God too much credit. He's infinite. He's infinite and he's done it all. Colossians 1.17 says, with Christ, he existed before anything else and he holds all things together. The author of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, says there's nothing better for the worker than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is the gift of God. Whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts, it is the gift of God. So the fact that all good things come from God is a bold, all caps conviction from Scripture, and so we will definitely hold the line on that. What's up for debate is how often and how loudly you profess that conviction by way of confession, right? There, there, there's a spectrum of, I'll put Tim Tebow on one side, who starts every interview back in the day. I'm from Denver, so it's just an easy example. I'd like to thank the Lord and Savior, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is maybe one side of the spectrum. And the other side of the spectrum is Christians living in a city like Seattle at their workplaces. All right, let's, let's just be honest. How can we give more credit to God and confess his goodness in the world that he might get the glory and others might come to look for him, look to him for good things. Hannah confessed how God intervened in his life to bring her good. And, and so we too consider all the good things in our life. They're, they're an extension of the same loving father who wants to give us good things to enjoy life. So that, that, that's her first big conviction. God did it. Her second big conviction. Hannah considered that God's gifts weren't for her benefit, 
but for his glory and his purposes in the world. God's gifts weren't for her, they're for his purposes. That's a big, big conviction. She had a deep conviction in her heart that God could do with more with her baby boy in his arms than she could with him in hers. God can do more with this boy than I can. That's like an incredible amount of sacrifice and humility that, that, that leads to this sacrifice. And this thinking is very rare among humans. Very rare. We live in a society that generally thinks the opposite. Um, we, we, we live in a world where most people would believe there's a God, that, that he wants us to be nice to one another, that even this God wants us to be happy, and that's it. Which means that we are tempted to think that humanity, us, we are the ends of God's good gifts to us. Like God gives good things for us. Like he, he wants us to be happy, right? And, and so what happens? We can tend to hold on to it. We don't turn it back around to God like Hannah did. We hoard it instead of reinvesting it in the kingdom of God. We hold on to it. Not Hannah. She gives them back. She, she doesn't hoard the happiness, the satisfaction, the security that her firstborn would have brought to her firstborn son, but she gives it back. I'm going to put this out there. This is something you can disagree with because I'm guessing at a consideration she had. But she saw that the gift that God gave her could bring her happiness, security, safety, perhaps even in this life. But if she were to give him back to God, it could continue on the benefits of that gift for eternity. She saw and she knew that giving things to God put an eternal flare into them where they could have returns on investment, return, 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 return. And it, sure enough, that's, ha- that's the story of Samuel. Samuel's the first prophet since Moses, Israel is stuck in this terrible cycle of running to the gods of the other countries, having, the, having these charismatic but super broken leaders called judges rule over them until their stuff went sideways and they go back. They were in this cycle going back and forth, back and forth, and Samuel's the one who stops the cycle. Samuel's the one who helps establish the kings of Israel, anoints Saul, anoints David. And it's through David that we first get this glimpse of, well, not, not first, but through David, we get this glimpse of what a Messiah would look like, of what God reigning at king might look like if he were to come to earth. So Hannah gives us a picture of the Messiah by way of her gift and the eternal nature of it, but also just even in her own heart. This is the coolest part of Hannah's story that I love the most. God gave him to me, so I give him to God. Like, it's just very natural for her because this is a glimpse of Jesus Christ himself. This is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus said he did. In John chapter 5, the, the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they challenged Jesus because he healed someone on the Sabbath, right? And, and Jesus' response to them goes like this. Um, this is a paraphrase. My father works seven days a week to extend goodness to y'all. Like, I'm definitely going to do the same thing. Okay, so that's kind of how he refutes it. But then he follows it up with this very interesting line. He says, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. That's Hannah. Hannah, this gracious woman with the same attitude of Christ because she mimics what she sees the Father do. The Father gave her a son. He gives, she gives her son. She gave him back for, the purpose, for his purposes in the world. She invested it back into the kingdom which at the time was her local priesthood 
of Israel, the, the temple that her and her husband and her family would worship at. What's the equivalent for today? The local church. This is how God works his kingdom into the world nowadays. Back then, it was the Levitical priesthood of, of systems that, that they, would, they would hold all of the, the Israelites responsible to worshiping the Lord in the hopes that the surrounding nations would see it happening and want to take part in it. We have so many different stories of outsiders coming into the, the, the people of Israel because they just saw it happening. And that's what God does through the local church today. It's not a one-for-one, quite the same thing, but it's very, very similar. The church is God's, one of God's greatest instruments for his kingdom working into the world. And so the, the direct application of the story of Hannah is this question. Would you consider giving all the good that God has given you, turning it back around to him, to reinvest in his kingdom by way of the local church? That, that, that's one of the, the biggest and most direct uh, passages and, and here, this is often what even in, in Jewish scripture, they would look to Hannah. They'd be like, this is how we, we think of giving to the temples. They'd, look, they'd point to Hannah's story. Look, she gave to the temple. This is one of the most direct applications. Um, now, don't bring us your children. Uh, I would die if I had another infant at my house. I just, I can't handle it. <laughs> so how are we actually supposed to apply this? Um, first, your gifts. Uh, God has given you skills, abilities, and spiritual gifts that you can keep to yourself or give back to God in service. It, it, it's, it's such a beautiful way to actually help one another. It, what, what are you doing? You're taking that which could just be temporal in your life, and you're putting an eternal flair to it by investing it back into the kingdom of the local church. And so essentially it goes like this. Um, if you have gifts and skills and abilities in music, you, you can rock out by yourself or you can lead the people of God in worship, which is going to carry eternal consequences in their souls and the people whom they interact with, both of them. You see that? So it works there. It can work anywhere. We can bring these gifts and talents and spiritual gifts into any element of the local church, a cohort, leading cohorts. You, maybe you've been given gifts of, of leadership. You can keep those to yourself and, and, and use those to, to better yourself in the world. Great. You can also use those in the cohort setting to, to organize and, and be hospitable and, and help people come together to work the five C's together. And all of a sudden, there's an eternal nature to the gift that God has given to you after you've given it back to him and reinvested in his kingdom. It's all to say you take the momentary good things that God gives you you reinvest them back in his kingdom, which sees eternal consequences come about. That's, a, that's consideration. We call that considering. But you put your gifts in the center and consider them in light of eternity. How could you use them? How might God use them in order to bring change, eternal change in people's lives? It's awesome. It's a really fun thing to think about. And the, the most incredible thing is God gives gifts to everyone. Every, no one's left out. It's not, like, it's not just like the most charismatic people get the gifts. I'm terrified of public speaking, but God gave me a gift of teaching. You know, like, like I don't feel like I should have the gift of teaching, but God gives each and every person a gift to contribute to the body. And, and one of the things we do here at Sedaris is help you identify what those are that you might be able to contribute to the eternal kingdom of God with them. Great. Um, the, the second one is money. It's money. 
And, and I, I say apologetically because if you're new, you might, or this is your first week, you might be like, I hate going to church. They always talk about money, you know? Um, we rarely talk about money, so I'm sorry you came on this Sunday. Uh, but <laughs> um, but, but the, the second one is money. Every dollar is a dollar that God has given us. And, and the question surrounding money is the same questions surrounding the other gifts. Are we going to hoard it? Are we going to keep it to ourselves? Are we going to experience the good blessings that money can bring? Or are we going to turn it back around and reinvest in the kingdom of God? Um, now, here, here at Sedaris, we think that 10% is a great goal to have, and, and we kind of have a paper kind of evaluating that in light of scripture on our give tab on our website. And that might seem like a lot to, uh, to, to many of us. But the, the thing that we encourage everyone to do is just, just look at the next step that's in front of you when, when you're thinking about this. If, if you aren't giving, uh, start giving. If you are giving somewhat sporadically, take a step to, to try to set up more regularly. You can set up a recurring schedule online. Um, if you are giving regular, uh, regularly, try to increase that a little bit. You know, like, like these are just, just small steps. And usually there's no way you can get to giving a significant portion of your budget uh, without budgeting, actually, you know, w- without actually budgeting. And there's lots of tools online uh, and lots of apps uh, that, you can, that can help you in, in budgeting. Um, as well, but, but don't hear me say, we're hard up for cash, we need your money. Like this is not like one of those sermons, okay? Like, I'm not trying to convince you of that. What I am saying is when we look through the scriptures, everything given back to God, everything sacrificed to God, carries an eternal nature and eternal consequences with it. And so there's, there's so much ministry that, that we could have the opportunity to have uh, given uh, more dollars in the budget. It's a simple, as that. And I'm not saying, like I said, we're not hard up for cash. There's no need to worry like, oh man, is this thing going to keep going? No, we're, I, this, the, the local church is an opportunity for all of us to use all the gifts, everything that God has given us in life to invest it in his kingdom, in a community, work in the five C's together, that we might see eternal fruit from it. That's all. That's all. And one of the most beautiful things about sacrificially giving of ourselves, of our money, when it does feel like a sacrifice, is it puts us right back into that dependent nature on God for stuff. It, it, it keeps us looking to God for help. We say, God, I, I've turned over all, all, I keep on handing you the good things that you give me, and that means I, I still need some help from you, God. I still need some help from the rest of the body, actually, too. And so in that sense, uh, the, the local church becomes that place where not only do we give, but we receive immense, immense blessings from those who are sitting next to us as well. So it's so beautiful. Now, I would be amiss if I didn't share with you, I, don't, I, I may not have used that word amiss correctly, but I don't know. We have to look at the first 10 verses of the next chapter because Hannah's, this is a Hannah's verbal confession that's incredibly beautiful. So she has like this verbal confession that she, that she gives when she gives Samuel over, but she also has like, uh, he, God gave him to me, so I gave him back to God. But she also has this beautiful prayer, which is actually the, the, the longest prayer um, by a woman recorded in the Bible or in the Old Testament. So this is what she prayed. It's so beautiful. My heart rejoices in the Lord. Keep in mind, she just got rid of her child. It's <laughs> amazing. My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. There's no rock like our God. 
Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The woman who is childless gives birth to seven. The woman with many sons pines away. Pananiah, there it is. Like Pananiah can't even find satisfaction in her own children. What does she have to do? She has to make fun of Hannah, right? The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some down to Sheol and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the trash heap. He seats them with noblemen and gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked perish in darkness. For a person does not prevail by his own strength. She knew that. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of Eli. We could devote a whole Sunday to this prayer, but what's, what, what's the big idea? What's the big idea? What's she saying? She, she's telling us who this God is that she's discovered and then says who we should be if we want him to act on our behalf. What does she say? Verse four, be feeble. Verse five, be hungry. Verse six, be childless. Verse seven, be humble. Verse eight, be poor. Verse eight again, be needy. Verse nine, be faithful. She's saying this is the person who God comes to help. It's, it's a message that presents itself in, in glimpses throughout the scriptures, but, but who underlines this and highlights this? It's Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek and humble, for they will, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus says this. And at the end of this prayer, if you would examine Hannah's situation compared to verse one, externally, it's the same. It's the same. She goes back home without Samuel. She does that. She's effectively childless again. But then God does something beautiful for her. Skip over to 221. After, well, back up to 18. Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in the place of the one she's given the Lord. Then they would go home. The Lord paid attention to Hannah's need. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. So God kept on acting on behalf of Hannah. God kept on giving her good things by his hands, and she kept on giving him glory and credit for all of those good things. And so as we lean into the five seas together with Hannah, I pray that we leave, uh, we leave Hannah's story knowing that we can hop on the same cycle that she worked through. If we recognize the areas God wants to connect with us in, 
if we lean into the significant conversation of exchanging hearts with God that takes work, it's sacrificial work, if we begin to consider all of the things he's given us with an eternal nature, we let the Holy Spirit convict us. We're, we're all going to give to the local church in very, very different ways, and it's very individualized through the Spirit and his gifts and his promptings. But we all get to come here together and confess the numerous ways that God has acted on our behalf, the good things he's given to us, and the things that, he's gonna, that he hopes to do through us in the world. And so that's the five C's with Hannah.